0: Thanks, Janine, for that reading. If you can keep it open, that'd be great. Uh, this is our final sermon in our series. We'll keep looking at the, uh, the letter to the Philippians. And that might be cause for celebration for some of you, perhaps. But uh, it's been, I think it's been great. It's been a really uh, enjoyable series to be spending our time looking at this letter. And I'm going to ask that God would help us to make the most of this uh, final opportunity. Father, thank you that we've been able to praise you in song. Thank you, Father, that we've been directed before you in prayer. Thank you, Father, that we've heard your word. And we pray now that you would open our hearts, that we might hear from you afresh. Father, would you challenge us to be more like Jesus? Would you change us when we're out of alignment with him? And Father, would you bring glory to yourself through this time? In Jesus' name, amen. Great. Well, I want to start today talking a little bit about how satisfied Australians are. Are you a satisfied bunch this morning? I'm giving you about a five out of ten, folks, that's what I'm saying. I've got some people up this end, I've got some people definitely down this end, and the rest of you, is, oh, yeah. it's a rhetorical question in church, I'm not saying anything. Well done you, that's fine. Uh, so how satisfied are Australians? Well, uh, the, uh, the information on happiness, the information on happiness uh, puts Australia out of uh, seven different things that you add up out of ten and then get a number out of however they do these things. Australia turned up uh, at number nine, apparently. Uh, the, the ninth happiest country in the world after, um, at the top of the list, I can't remember it wasn't Switzerland. I think it might have been Finland or somewhere like that. Norway, was it? That sort of area of the world anyway. Anyway. Um, up, up, up there was a bit colder than, than we are here. Uh, but yeah, so okay, there we are. We're number nine. How does that make you feel? Even happier. Or, or alternatively, if you, if you weren't really thinking you're at the top of the charts, you're going, great, I'm having a bad time and I'm in the number nine country in the whole world. How would I be doing if I was in the Central African Republic, which is the last one? So here's the thing apparently, statistically, we're a pretty happy bunch. Uh, there's uh, another group called the Australian uh, Wellbeing Index. They put together this Australian Wellbeing Index and they have this triangle, these three points of well-being. And the three points are financial control, sense of purpose, and relationships. Now, this is godless, okay? This is just them looking at the world around them. And what they say if you're going to be happy, these three things need to be strong and sorted out. So, financial control, you need to be in control of your finances. Uh, You need to have a sense of purpose, and they include important things like gardening in your sense of purpose. Uh, And over here, they talk about relationships. Now, the relationships one is a no-brainer, and we all know that finances give us stress, so that kind of makes sense. But it's intriguing to see in a secular assessment that a sense of purpose is one of those three things that will drive a sense of well-being in people. Now, as Christians, we kind of go, duh, but... It's true, and it's helpful, and so there's a measure of looking at, uh, at happiness. And they're saying on the whole, Australians are pretty happy people, however, we're not all happy, are we? And we looked at some of that last week. Uh, we saw this, these stats again from Beyond Blue. Uh, around two million people in Australia are living with anxiety. About a million people in Australia live with depression, and this terrible statistic Nearly eight Australians take their own lives every day. It's an appalling statistic, isn't it? Even in this lucky country of ours, one in three women and one in five men are likely to experience anxiety in their lifetime. One in six women and one in eight men are likely to experience depression at some point in their lifetime. Now that must mean, statistically, right here this morning, that there are people experiencing both of those. And on that well-being triangle that we looked at, some of you will feel like your finances are out of control. Some of you will have relationships that are deeply grieving you at the moment. Some of you really will be scrapping about to say, what am I here for? Where is my sense of purpose? And so we want to think this morning, why aren't we content? Or even more so, if we are happy and to some extent content, what does God's idea of contentment look like? What does God's idea of contentment look like? Well, uh, we're going to see that, and I want to point out a couple of reasons why we might be frustrated, even if, on the whole, we're relatively happy. I want to introduce you to a guy called Barry Schwartz, and uh, he- here he is doing a uh, a TED talk. Now, if you've ever has anyone watched TED talks before, do you know what they are? Yeah, okay. When you're doing a TED Talk, typically you've got your suit on and you're looking your best, okay? Barry Schultz is so comfortable in his own skin, he's got shorts on and his favourite T-shirt. I just, I absolutely love this guy. So here's Barry and he's up there doing his TED Talk. He wrote a book in 2004 called The Paradox of Choice. Has anyone heard of this? The idea of the paradox of choice is we would think that the more choices we have, the better we are, better off we are. What Barry says is, the more choices we have, the worst off we are. That the more choices we have, the more paralyzed we become with how do we choose the right, insert thing here. He said he went to his supermarket and he found that his supermarket had 187 types of salad dressing. And he said, now... Any reasonable human cannot possibly survey 187 of them, but what happens knowing that there are 187 is you think, I might have made the wrong choice. So you get home and you think, well I thought this was the best one, and now I'm tasting and it's it's not quite, it's a little bit too something, right? And you think, oh, the answer must be that the 184th one would have been the one that would have brought me fulfilment and happiness in life. Yes? And so you go back and now you're faced with 186 to choose from and your next choice is even harder. So so what he actually says is that our choices overwhelm us, and he actually talks about that in the personal realm as well. He says, nobody ever makes plans because something better might turn up, and the result is that no one ever does anything. Do you you know this feeling? Someone says, oh, this weekend, do you want to? And we think to ourselves, ah, anyone? Ah, uh, I'll just check my diary, which is really not just, not just, "I'm going to see whether I've got nothing else on." It's, "oh." Was there something else that might have... Um, look, can I get back to you? Anybody? Anybody? No, no you just lock it in. Is that right, Cam? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so not Cameron, okay, but, but some of us, certainly. So, so this whole thing, oh, I can't lock that in because another thing might come along. And so what happens is too much choice paralyzes us, and we have this thing called FOMO. Does everyone know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out, FOMO, okay? So we, have this, we live with this fear of missing out. Barry says something else. He says social media isn't helping us either, Okay, he says, if you're comparing, so we end up comparing ourselves to everyone else. How's my life doing against how everyone else is doing? And he says, if you're comparing yourself to people on Facebook, well, everyone's a star on Facebook. The result is that your own life is duller, less interesting, and more depressing for you. What he says is, if you're obsessed with Facebook, what will happen is too much social media impacts us, and it leads us to personal dissatisfaction. We edit what we project into the world, but we never think, as we look at everybody's edited profiles, that anyone's edited. We only think we edit, and so we conclude that everyone else is always on the beach having a brilliant day. Is that right? So, what he says is there is a, an absolutely overwhelming sense that choice and awareness of social media is actually giving us dissatisfaction. Here's another reason that we can be dissatisfied. Love this ad. apart from the fun of that, here's their slogan. Here's their slogan. Here's their slogan. If we don't sell it, you don't need it. If we don't sell it, you don't need it. One of the biggest problems we have, one of the reasons that we're so dissatisfied is that we confuse wants and needs. We confuse wants and needs. If we don't sell it, you don't need it. Rubbish. I don't need to go to the range at all i certainly don't need a speaker earphone but that's okay here's the thing our life is constantly mixed up in getting needs confused with wants okay i think i keep on thinking that what i need is actually no, no no it's actually a want i don't need a new car unless it's really not working anymore but how many people replace cars when they're not working I need an upgrade to my computer. Really? You need it. We need to actually just start owning our language a little bit better so we can we confuse wants and needs. Here's another reason. Um, whatever's happening for me right now, it'll be better off in the Shire. No, no, no. Uh, the, the, the point, because the point, it wouldn't be, would it? We're in Oran Park, so we're doing fine. Okay. Uh, do you know this grass is greener thinking? The grass is always greener over there, and what it means is we're never present here. Do you know this thinking? Oh, look, my job's not really good, but if I had that job, my life would be better. This, this isn't really satisfying me now, but over there, this course that I've started, it, but if I did that one, I'd be... The grass is greener thinking means that we are never present where we are. We're always somewhere else hoping that it'll be better in the future. What about this one? I'm not sure if you can see it. Uh, some of us would like to think that we're totally self-sufficient, and I love the picture of the lighthouse in the middle of the sea, right? We're totally self-sufficient. We can get by without any need. That's how I'll find satisfaction. When I'm totally in control of my life, I'm an isolated little island, I'm okay, all right? What's the only problem with thinking that a lighthouse is, is self-sufficient? It needs to be resupplied all the time, doesn't it? Otherwise, you'll starve on your little lighthouse. That's the, uh, that's the lie, okay? So the myth of self-sufficiency, I think I'm going to be fine. I don't need any help from anyone, right? It leads to arrogance, and I think it leads to atheism. If I've got enough money in the bank, I don't need you, and I don't need God. That will end up being very dissatisfying for us. I want to read you the Orem Park verse. Did you know that there was the Orem Park verse in the Bible? Every time I read this, I think this is Orem Park. Okay, Now, it was written, Moses preached it before they went into the promised land. So he wasn't thinking about Orem Park. Let's be clear about that. Everyone clear? But I think this is the Orem Park voice. I know it's small, but I want to read it to you because I think it's great. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Here's what it says. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. About 575 square meters. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws and decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks are large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Church, that's us. The thing that we need to be most concerned about is in the fineness of what we've got. As we sit down to Sunday lunch and we say, haven't I made a great place? Isn't my patio beautiful? My garden is now bedded in. I've unpacked all the boxes out of my garage. Look what my hands have done. And in fact, they're a gift from God. And the warning is that we will lose God in our self-assurance and our pride. So what can we do? What can we do? I want you to find contentment. Isn't that beautiful? I want you to find contentment in what God's plan is. Open up to Philippians chapter 4 for me. That'd be great. Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read for you verses 10 to 13. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. See, Paul's writing to the Philippian church, and he says, I'm so glad that you've remembered me. Remember what they'd done. They'd sent money to help Paul, who was in prison. And so he said, I'm so glad that you've renewed your concern for me. He's he's incredibly thankful for them. And he praises them for the encouragement that their action has been. But when Paul says here, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. What, what, What he's saying is, I've actually lived this stuff. I'm going to tell you a secret, he says, but it's not academic I'm not saying to you from my uh, years of living in uh, uh, Double Bay, I understand what it means to be poor. Okay, I really do. I get you, poor people. No, no, no. It's not some hypothetical. Paul has been naked. He's been beaten. He's been shipwrecked. He, he knows what it is to suffer and he knows what it is to be in need. And so Paul's Information for us today doesn't come from an academic perspective, but I want you to note he actually is giving us something very precious because he says, I know what it is to be in need, and he says, I know what it is to be in plenty. Now, for many of us here, we'll know far more one end of that spectrum than the other. Is that right? Yes. So here's the thing. Paul has a secret for us. Secret number one, he has two secrets for us today. Secret number one, he's not afraid to share them. In fact, he wrote them in a letter, so they're not too secret. But here's secret number one. Secret number one is this, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. How can I cope with being in need? How can I cope with having enough, being in plenty? He says, I've learnt the secret. I can do all of this through Christ who strengthens me. The answer to contentment in need and in plenty is found in Jesus. So the first secret that we need to know today is that contentment is for those in Jesus and it's from Jesus. So if you seek contentment any other way, you will in the end come to a place of discontentment. The offer only is available from God. And he says, if you're someone who's in Jesus, then he has power for you. His strength will enable you to find contentment, whether in plenty or in need. So, question today, that's the secret. Secret number one, find contentment in Jesus and from Jesus. Are you looking to Jesus to be content? Now, at this point, you just sit there in your your seat and you think, yeah, of course I am. And I go, really? Because aren't you finding contentment in the next holiday? Haven't you planned the cruise somewhere? Aren't you looking to upgrade this? Aren't you looking to get a new whatever? When I say to you, are you looking for contentment in Jesus? I'm saying, what's the next thing on your horizon that you're hoping for? That's what we're building for. That's what we're hoping will give us the fix. We'll get content. And here, Paul is saying it's from Jesus and in Jesus. So I want to ask you, does Jesus ever come into your contentment planning? By saying to Jesus, Jesus, what would you have me do? What are your priorities for my money, my time, my family? Do we ever turn to Jesus and say, actually, Jesus, you're part of my contentment plan? So given that I've laid it out like that, let me ask you this question. Are you looking to Jesus to be content? Now we can think about it. It's interesting that financial financial things come into uh, both our stresses and also our well-being. Being in charge of your finances, they say, will give you a much better chance of feeling well. If you're doing that, they say that you're more than likely to have a budget and have some idea of how much money is going in and going out. How are we doing with that, folks? Don't answer. Some of you are nailing it. Some of you are elbowing your significant other going, we need to nail that. I want you to see Paul uses accounting language in this second section here, And he uses it in a surprising way. Have a look with me at verses 14 to 19. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment, and I have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. See, here's the thing. First of all, we see there was something special about the Philippians. They are the only church that helped Paul. Paul goes, yes, so thankful for you guys. I love you. And it's not just financial. We've seen all the way through this letter, haven't we, that he genuinely loves them. So he doesn't just love them because they gave him some money. Yes, he loves them. But he says, I love that your love, I love that your love, uh, had practical expression. You were generous towards me and you supplied my needs. He also points out that there's a heavenly ledger. Have a look at verse 17. Not that I desire your gifts, What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Who's got the account? God. And what in God's heavenly ledger he's doing is he goes, I see your generosity, Philippian church, and I count your generosity as a deposit in the heavenly ledger. So what happened? They divested themselves of money. They they, they didn't have as much money as they had before. But God sees it and he goes, I give you more in your heavenly ledger. And you go, that sounds like some funny accounting, doesn't it? Because all I see is money going out. And Paul is saying, actually, there's a different transaction. There's a spiritual transaction going on. You're supporting the work of the ministry, and God sees it, and he credits it to your account. Just so we're 100% clear, it doesn't mean in, that you in heaven will walk around with big bags of cash, and you'll be richer than someone else being able to buy a condo closer to the throne. Okay, that, That's not what we're talking about. Okay? The rewards of God will be praise and honor in his presence rather than more cash than someone else in the next life. Okay? Are everyone clear? Good. Okay, good. So there is a heavenly ledger, though, and he goes, when you, when you act for God, he stores up rewards for you. And then he actually says that this offer is like a fragrant offering to God, Uh, when you go home and have lunch this afternoon and there's a steak on the barbie and you can just smell that smell. Do you know the steak smell? Not the sausage smell. Sausage smells pretty good, but the steak smell, something else. Okay, and we go, oh, that's pretty good. Okay, you're getting an idea. In the Old Testament, they had meat sacrifices. Did you know that? And it says that God sees it. It's a a fragrant aroma. Okay, he loves the smell of their offering. I think God likes a barbecue as much as you, which is great. Here's the thing. He says, your generosity comes up before God like a fragrant offering. It pleases God when you are generous to his people. Isn't that beautiful? And so we see here something that we started this letter with, that Paul is relating to the Philippians. The Philippians are relating to Paul, and both of them are pointing themselves to Jesus in which they're finding their great hope. So why do the Philippians give to Paul? Because they love Jesus. Why does Paul write back to the Philippians to encourage them to keep trusting Jesus? It's all built around the hope that they have in Jesus. Are you ready for secret number two? And the church said, great, look at that, I knew you were. Here's, uh, here's secret number two, it's in, uh, it's in verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. That's an extraordinary promise, isn't it? My God will meet all of your needs according to his riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful promise. Satisfaction then in this world, contentment and satisfaction is for the generous in Jesus. Do you want to find satisfaction? It's about being generous. And it is from God's generosity. You can rest easy in need or in plenty because you're looking to God's good hand to supply all your needs. So there were times where Paul was beaten up in jail and he said, God, you are supplying for me everything I need today. There are times, I assume, when he was being hosted in Lydia's house in Philippi and they're having a brilliant feast. And he went as a look around with my friends and this great feast in front of me he said, God, you're meeting all of my needs according to your riches in glory. The difference was Paul was looking to God to figure out if what he had now was enough. Where we go, I don't have enough. God, I need more, please. Can you see the difference? Here in my situation, I'm looking to God, Father, do I have enough? Versus I don't have enough, Father, I need more. You can see the difference, yes? So here's the question. Are you looking to God to provide your needs? Are you looking to God to provide your needs? What would we need to change? Well, here's, I think, where we need to start. Not necessarily with an iPhone X, but okay, let's start there. Uh, is that a need? The answer at church is? Okay. <laughs> I did hear a sneaky yes in there somewhere, okay. All right, here's the thing. What we need to change, I think, and we need to be serious about this, is we need to change our language. We need to change our language. When we say, of consumable goods, I need that, Okay, We need to get that out of our thing. We need to correctly identify needs and wants. So I think we need to just own it, right? I desperately want X. Now, you sound like a mad person, right? As opposed to, I need to have it. It's really important. I need to have it. No, no. I just want it. I just want to put a cherry on top. Thank you very much. Nothing will be materially changed if I do or don't have it. It's just a want. Or alternatively, I absolutely need it, Heavenly Father, and I'm looking to you to provide what is necessary for me and my family. Own your needs, recognize your wants. We need to change our language. So Paul says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to be to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any or every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. How can he be satisfied? Because he knows the difference between what he wants and what he needs. Not all wants need to be met. Not all wants need to be met. Your credit card is crying out to you with this piece of information. Not all wants need to be met. Secondly, we need to see where we're seeking. Are we looking to Jesus or to ourselves? Are we looking to Jesus or are we looking to ourselves? Paul says in Philippians 1.21, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you're looking to Jesus, he'll make sense of your needs and wants, and you will be far more satisfied if your priority is to say, genuinely, hand on heart, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I promise you everything will find right order after that. If you say for me to live is to pay off my mortgage and make sure my kids get the best education they can while I'm in the most fulfilling work I have, while I have the best health I have, and my family loves me, then I promise you you will find disappointment. If you seek Christ first... You will find in him all those other things, as heartbreaking as they are, will find right order because you're seeking Christ first. Only in Jesus is the power to be content. Only in Jesus is the power to be content. And thirdly for us, I think, I want us to look at our situation. What do you do with abundance? What do you do when you're in a situation of abundance, This beautiful passage from 2 Timothy 6 is worth your reading after church. I won't major on it now, but have a look and look over it again. Here's what Paul says, and I'm going to speak it strongly because he uses the word command twice. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so what, church? Uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Here's the exchange. Be stingy towards God and you will not know life that is truly life. Place no hope in wealth, but be rich towards God and mankind that's the encouragement this morning place no hope in wealth so here's what i want to say want for less want for less you'll be in need for nothing want for less you'll be in need for nothing because my god will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory I want us to finish by praying a prayer that Jesus taught us, and uh, it was alluded to uh, in uh, Alex's uh, introduction to his prayer. As we pray the Lord's Prayer, which you know, I've been praying it daily recently, who would have thought, and I've been reminded it's actually really helpful. It's really helpful. Can I encourage you? We're going to pray this together. I want you to listen to the words. I want you to say who's, see whose glory we're working for, whose kingdom we're working for, what he will provide for us, and how we should live in relationship with others. Do you remember those three things? Have a look at how the Lord's Prayer just nails them and points us to God for contentment. Let's pray this prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen.